God speaks to us in his word in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man in the dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ivy. Thanks, Ben. Um, well, like Ben said, my name is Blake. I know a lot of you, not all of you personally. So I'm Blake, if you don't know me yet. I'm glad to be here with you. Um, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, so uh, I teach middle school. So teaching is not necessarily something new or like too nervy for me, but usually my like learning community sort of ends at the age of 13 or 14. Uh, so teaching, preaching in a setting like this is super brand new to me. Um, so will you, will you do a favor for me? Will you pray uh, for me in just a moment? Would you pray for the Holy Spirit to come and be with me? And I'll pray for all of us. I'll pray for you. Um, and as we pray together, we, we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit will be with us. So let's pray. Spirit, we, we need your presence in this room. Every one of us need the life-giving presence of you to dwell with us. Spirit, I pray for the, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, to dwell in our hearts this morning. I pray that you would lift up our eyes and soften our hearts to see Jesus and put our hope in him today. We trust you. We love you. We long for your presence. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there's a couple of reasons, I think, why today's uh, sermon text and topic are really appropriate for us, and I hope that as, as I preach, that'll be more clear. But the two reasons are, one, that it's New Year's Day, um, so what a good day to talk about uh, new humanity, a new way of living, a new way of like um, following Jesus and being a human being. Um, so New Year's Day, I think, is appropriate for that. But then also, in just five days from today, uh, the church across the world is observing and celebrating a feast day called the Feast of Epiphany or the Day of Epiphany. Um, and it's been on the church calendar for a very long time, right? The, the calendar of the church, like Advent, we just celebrated for four weeks, and Christmas, and Easter, and Pentecost, all of those things that we call the church calendar, uh, are not something bound to one denomination, one way of following Jesus, right? It's actually way before those things even existed. So the church calendar is old, the feast day of Epiphany is old. And that word Epiphany means manifestation, and on Epiphany, we're remembering and we're celebrating that God became manifest with us, that he showed up in not just a spiritual way, but in a body, right, in the person of Jesus. So on Epiphany, we're celebrating God coming with us and dwelling with us in the flesh. And in New Year's, we're also sort of looking, looking at the year in front of us and kind of like taking hope, hopefully. So uh, during the week of the four weeks of Advent that we just observed uh, leading up to Christmas, we, we talked about uh, how the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, that word um, just means that God became flesh, right? That Jesus is fully human, that God became a human with us. 
right? We, we talked about how uh, the incarnation of Jesus uh, affects and impacts profoundly our past and our future. We talked a lot about the future, right? That God came and he's coming again, right? That's what Advent is all about. Like we're looking for at his first coming with hope towards his second coming. And we asked like what sort of like hopes does that, what sort of promises does that carry with us, with him, right? The return of Jesus um, promises a resurrection from the dead, that all evil will be judged, that there will be a new creation and new heavens and new earth. Right? Those are good things to, to look at when we think about the incarnation, but today I want us to examine um, what sort of significance does the incarnation have for our life right now, like when I walk away from this church um, today on January the 1st, what, what does the incarnation mean for me? How can I think about it? How do I walk into a new year after Christmas and go live an order, ordinary life that often doesn't really feel very profoundly shaped by the coming of God in the person, in the present, Right? Like, it's cool that God came in the past to forgive my sins, and it's cool that he's coming back to resurrect the dead, but I need new tires, and those are expensive, so what, how does that, like, affect my reality? Or maybe I'm tired of being a parent or a spouse or an employee, like, that's been kind of exhausting through the Christmas season. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that we need, uh, we need. The incarnation actually has something to say to that. We need to go to the Bible to get an answer on those questions. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15 today. It's a long chapter. Ben actually preached from this chapter when he talked about the resurrection because that's primarily what this chapter is about. But in order to look at and discuss our experience of being human, I think Paul has something really profound to say to us from 1 Corinthians 15 too. For today, right? We're looking forward at the resurrection, but there's something for today, right, in the incarnation. So I want to make a couple of observations, and then we'll wrap up by just sort of practically exploring what does it mean that God came in the flesh? So as we're going back and looking at 1 Corinthians 15 and what Paul's saying, um, we're noticing, I'm noticing that he's talking about two different Adams, and that's kind of strange to me first. Um, we probably have a, an idea for a lot of us, if you've been around the church before, right, of what who Adam is, right? In Genesis 1 through 4, there's a guy named Adam, and he was the first human being, and he had a wife named Eve, right? That's great, but what about this other Adam that Paul is talking about? So in the Old Testament, after the first Adam in Genesis 3, after he sins and he falls and all things are corrupted by our sin, right, there's this sort of thread in the rest of the Old Testament that we need somebody else to come and do what Adam couldn't do, right? We need somebody who's gonna reverse all of that stuff, that sin and that corruption that Adam and Eve brought. And in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, right, and he wrote 1 Corinthians, especially in Paul's writings, the writers of the Bible are making this connection between that Adam, that first man, and all of the hope of, like, who's going to come and reverse all that corruption stuff that he did. And then Jesus, they call Jesus the last Adam or the second Adam, right? Jesus, just like the first Adam, is the founder of a humanity, a type of being, a creation, but it's a new creation. So the authors of the Bible noticed this connection and uh, they pointed out. Let's, I'll put it simply, right? The first Adam is the beginning of creation and humanity. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, is the beginning of a new creation, a new way of being human. But we want to start with where the Bible starts, the first Adam. And so my first point is that in the first Adam, we are all dust. 
from Genesis 2. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being, or some of your translations say living creature. I like that one. I like that word. So God made us out of dust, but dust sort of meant to be glorified and to live beyond just its dustiness, right? Because he gives this dust the breath of his life, and also he places on this dust, this human, his image and relationship with him. He's blessed us to a calling of an abundant life, to bear fruit, to fill the earth with his glory, to have dominion, kind of like God has dominion, to be like God, right? But the dust that we are, Adam, right, we sinned. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve choose not to glorify themselves by bearing God's image and being in relationship with him, but instead they are undone by their sin. Sin is decreating us, all of us. Genesis 3, God says, you're going to eat bread by the sweat of your brow. This is right after they've sinned and God is sort of exploring the consequences of that with them. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. So rather than dust being glorified, right? Rather than our, our identity being lifted by relationship with God, right? We chose our own path. And instead of being lifted up, we're actually moving backwards. We're returning to where we came from instead of moving towards God. Paul says this, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. It's in Romans. So it started with Adam and Eve, but lest we be tempted to just blame Adam and Eve, right? Paul makes it clear. We're all sinful. This fallenness that keeps us from being fully human, bearing the image of God, living within the blessings of God, walking with God in the garden, right? It's all of our problem. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul also says. Our sin and our fallen natures keep us from being what God has made us to be. They keep us from being fully human, right? There's this story in the Old Testament that I think, um, for me, sort of perfectly portrays uh, this, this truth. It's in Genesis 11. It's the, the story of the Tower of Babel. Maybe you've heard that if you went to like Sunday school or Bible school when you were a kid, but we don't think about it too much after that, right? It's like, oh, that's kind of an interesting, weird one. Like, that's a great kid story. Let's move on, right? But in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, right, these guys, these Babelites come together at this place and they're like, hey, you know what we should do? We should make some bricks out of dust, out of dirt, and we should burn those bricks so that they're like extra sturdy bricks of dust, right? We're going to make the best dusty bricks we can. And we're going to use those bricks to build a tower that reaches heaven, right? And God comes down and he sees what they're doing and is like, mm, I don't think that's going to be such a good idea. And so their building project ends, God ends it, and it results in their scattering and their confusion, right? It results in barriers being put up between them, right? So the Tower of Babel is this sort of weird story, but it's actually a great object lesson for us on what, what I'm talking about here. Here's what it means, right? Men take the dust of the earth and they make bricks out of it in order to build up to God. And that's kind of a foolish and impossible task. And part of the object lesson of that story is that we're all guilty of that very same task. I've never made a brick in my life, but I'm still a Babylite, right? 
It's a great metaphor for my attempts and our attempts to sort of try and clean up our human nature in our own power. Like, let's just gather together all the dust of our fallen existence and see if we can't make a utopia out of it, right? The sort of secular humanist worldview, by secular humanist, I mean, like, humanist is human beings in our own, like, sort of natural progression are going to evolve into this sort of, like, perfect way of living, and secular just means, like, without God. So the secular humanist worldview that we're just going to, like, eventually get to heaven on earth on our own, right, it's a false gospel. Our human ingenuity, our dust, is not going to result in heaven coming to earth. Our nature is cursed and corrupted. Bricks made of the dust of the fallen earth cannot reach heaven. And we wouldn't want them to either, because if we're there and we're corrupted, then it's not even heaven anymore. So I, I love and I affirm, like, the byproducts of, like, human progression. That's great. I think an Apple Watch is cool. I would like to have one. Right? I like being able to travel. I really love literature. I go to therapy, so psychology is helping me out a lot, right? But if the end goal of all of those byproducts, right, if we're taking those things and saying these are the, the components of, like, utopia of heaven on earth, then actually we're lying to ourselves because we're made of dust, Happy New Year, right? But the good news is um, that we're not left to our own devices. We're not left to building with bricks just made of dust, right? In the last Adam, we are becoming a new creation, set free from just building with dustiness. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is emphasizing the differences between the last Adam and the first, between humankind and the incarnate Jesus. The first Adam is dust, and so are his people, that's all of us, but the last Adam is heavenly, and so are his people, and in Jesus, that's us too. So a lot of times when we're talking incarnation, we zoom in on the places in the New Testament where the similarities between us and Jesus are really clear, right? So that we can emphasize and, and feel his nearness to us, which is a blessing, which is beautiful. Hebrews says, therefore, he had to be make, made like his brothers in every respect so that we could become, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, right? That's good news. And the ways that Jesus are similar to us are super important. He became like us in every way. That's like a balm for my soul, right? That's good for me. And Paul knows this, right? He calls him Adam. The word Adam or Adam in the Hebrew means man. It's one of their words for man. But it's derived from the word Adamah, which is Hebrew for dust or dirt or earth, right? So just by calling Jesus an Adam, Paul knows that he's similar to us, that he's like us, right? That he's actually clothed himself in the dustiness of humanity, yet without sin. So the ways that he is similar to us in the incarnation is so important, and beautiful, but the ways that he's different from us are also important. He took on everything that was necessary to redeem us, but he left off all of the cursed, sinful, corrupted, unnecessary parts of our fallenness, right? So if the Tower of Babel is our sort of object lesson in the futility of trying to build from, from earth up to heaven, then the incarnation of Jesus is actually our beautiful, necessary lesson in Jesus coming from heaven down to earth. We need the incarnation because the Tower of Babel doesn't work. He's making us a different kind of humanity in his own strength. And his incarnation opens up the door to a new way of being human, right? Not just in the past, not just in the future, but right now. You are a new creation in him. You are honored and dignified in him. 
There's this guy named Athanasius who lived uh, in the 300s, so like 1,700 years ago. Which, by the way, if you're looking for, if anybody in the room is looking for a good baby name anytime soon, Athanasius, pretty cool, right? And he was one of the men that we call a father of the church. And the reason we call him that is because, uh, like a good father would, after the apostles died and are gone, right, Athanasius is one of these guys who was serving the church. And he helped to establish and protect the essentials of our faith. Right, so he's not an apostle, he's not Jesus, but he was important in the history of the church. And he wrote a book called On the Incarnation. In that book, he says this. It's a long quote, so it's on the screen for you, too. It's, it's long, but it's good. We need it. You know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses? Because of his dwelling in that single house, the whole city is honored, and enemies and robbers cease to molest it. Even so, it is with the king of all, with Jesus. He has come into our country and dwelt in one body amidst the many. If we're following that metaphor, right, if it's just like a king comes into a house and the whole city is honored, if Jesus came into a body, all bodies are honored, right? His body for him was not a limitation but an instrument so that he was both in it and in all things and outside all things resting in the Father alone. At one and the same time, this is the wonder. As man, he was living a human life, and as word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. And as son, he was in constant union with the Father. Not even his birth from a virgin, therefore, changed him in any way, nor was he defiled by being in a body, but rather he sanctified the body by being in it. Jesus honors our bodies and our existence by coming in a body. So at the very base level, his incarnation means that your body and my body is honored and dignified. In Colossians, Paul says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And if the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus, then through Jesus, because he's in you, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in you. If the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus, then through Jesus, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in his people. I kind of remember the first time that that was like really made clear to me or really told me, like I didn't really think about that beforehand, like that God is pleased to dwell in me through Jesus. That was like kind of shaping for me and kind of mind-blowing for me, that um, God's salvation, his redemption of me, his turning me into a different kind of person, like, it's not obligatory, like, I made him, so I might as well just save him, too, right? Um, it's the case that, actually, it's a free choice of God's to save us and redeem us and make us a new type of human, and that it's his joy to do it. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory, of God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. So in Jesus, who is the exact representation of God's glory in nature, that imprint of God's glory in nature is stamped on us too, because Jesus is in us. We were made for that image, we corrupted it in ourselves through sin, and Jesus gives it back to us. Made in God's image and likeness, and through the first Adam, we corrupted that image in ourselves. But thanks be to God, through the last Adam, God is redeeming not just our souls or our debts to our sins, but the whole existence and identity of humanness, right? We're not just dust anymore. 
because heaven came down to dwell as dust with us. If the incarnation is only about the past and the future, only about Jesus getting to the cross and then the redemption of our souls on the last day, then Jesus might as well has just, just come and died and raised and ascended all in the same day. Just get it all over with in one day. But it's not, and he didn't. The fact that he lived a full human life in perfection means that he is opening up to us a way of redeemed human life in the image of God, right? And he thought that was important to do, not just come and die and be raised in one day, but let's live a full life, right? Look back at verse 45 if you've got your Bible open. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, a living creature. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And who is he giving life to? He's giving it to us, not just in a spiritual sense, but in a real right now sense. He says in John 10, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. And right, let's not forget that the Jesus who said that is also the Jesus who healed with mud and he made wine for a poor person's wedding. He stopped a woman from bleeding so that she could be a part of her community. He broke bread with his friends, like actual bread. It's not a metaphor. He worked as a carpenter and built things probably really well. He spoke with his actual vocal cords to calm a storm. He touched sick people. He cried over his friend's death, right? He's not just talking about a future abundant life because he's already lived a perfect and abundant life, right? A new human life that he's offering to us. So the fact that Jesus saw fit to live a whole human incarnate life with a body and with a stomach and with friends and with hurts, right? It, it's proof that he knew that we needed this new way of being human and that he's offering it to us. Second Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, therefore, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. That's not just a future thing. That's a now thing, right? You are, your body, your life, your existence is sown in Christ as a seed of the new creation, right? You are a seed of new creation, of heaven come down to earth because Jesus is in you if you believe in him, right? Listen to this hymn that a deacon in the early church wrote. The church in the 300s was singing about Jesus opening up a new way of being human. Listen to this. Among the saints, none is naked, for they have put on glory. Nor is any clad in those leaves or standing in shame. Right, that's from Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they saw they were naked. They tried to cover it up because they were ashamed of who they were. Not anymore. For they have found through our Lord Jesus the robe that belongs to Adam and Eve, right? We're not naked anymore. We're not standing in shame. We're not clothed in fig leaves or we're not clothed like animals. We're clothed in the robe that belongs to Adam and Eve and is ours in Jesus Christ, the last Adam, right? In just a few minutes, we're about to eat some bread together if you are a baptized believer. And this bread is like $2 bread from Walmart Bakery, right? And it's not terrible, but it's also not great, you know? And that's kind of how I feel most of the time in my life is like, not terrible, but not great all the time either. Um, I think this bread on purpose is a really helpful picture for us of what it's like to follow Jesus, right? It's Walmart bread. It's not terrible, but it's not great. But when we break it and you hold out your hands to get a piece of it, it is entirely appropriate that the person giving you that bread says this is the body of Jesus, Right? And that's what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. We're not terrible. We're not great. We're sinful. Right? 
But in Jesus, it's entirely appropriate for somebody to say, you are the temple of the living God. You're the body of Christ, right? That's good news. It doesn't always feel like that, though. And so our third point um, is that in the in-between place of life, right, in between Jesus' first and second coming, there's tension. Christians are people of dust and of heaven at the same time, right? Because Jesus, the kingdom of God is already present, but it's not yet fully complete. Paul recognizes this as much as he's able to speak eloquently about the sort of new life and new creation that we are in Jesus, as much as he's able to say we're seeds being sown of resurrection, right, through Christ, he also says that uh, he wants to do the right thing, but every time he wants to do the right thing, evil is lying close by at hand, right? He, he says he serves God with his mind, but his body is constantly serving the law of sin, right? So Paul gets it. We're still kind of tangled up and still kind of messy, We're this weird blend as human beings, even when we're in Christ, of God's image, but also corrupted sinfulness still kind of clinging on for dear life. Paul knew that he was dust, even as he lives his new life in the Spirit, right? He says in Romans 8, therefore there's no condemnation. So he's aware, right? It's a new life. There's no condemnation for you, but he still serves the law of sin and death with his flesh, right? On this side of the second coming, we're still bound by corruption, by the law of sin that Paul talked about in Romans. Even while we're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, sanctification is beautiful. God is removing the old self from us and causing us to bear fruit, right? It's awesome that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Like, he does the work to bear fruit in us. But we're not finished products yet, and sometimes that means there's a ton of anxiety in the in-between moments, right? That's what Paul was so frustrated about. Frustrated about. If you go back and read that Romans quote that I just talked about, he's like frustrated. He's like, I'm a wretched person. Who's going to save me? Who's going to make me better, right? It's frustrating for me too, right? I go to therapy for anxiety, and that's not uncommon in our church or in our world, certainly. But it's this sign, right, that like I, I have all these hopes of being a certain type of person, being, right? I have all these ways that I picture life going, and it doesn't go that way, and I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I'm not who I want to be, even. And that causes anxiety. It causes tension. I'm still dust, even while I'm also becoming heavenly. The Bible's insistent that being one of God's people will require waiting. In 2 Peter, Peter says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And if the new heaven and the new earth is where righteousness dwells, that means that this heaven, or this earth right now where we dwell, is not always the place where righteousness dwells. It's not always the place where things are fair or where justice reigns, right? So how do we live in that tension? We gotta wait patiently, for one. In Romans 12, later on, Paul's gonna say, rejoice in hope. That's, that's a good word. As angsty as I feel, also rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. I was thinking earlier this morning and I wrote, I scribbled it in really quick because the thought occurred to me like, man, how often in the New Testament or just in the Bible in general do patience and prayer have to be like brother and sister, right? Patient people have to be prayerful people also, I think. And I'm not super great at being a prayerful person. I don't like pray without ceasing. So sometimes it's hard for me to be patient too. And so this, this word from Romans speaks to me. Wait patiently, be constant in prayer. 
we also need to look to Jesus, right? Every time we worship and we come in here, we rehearse the gospel, right? We go from like confession to hearing about the good news of Jesus to then celebrating with Jesus at the table or the entire year of like the church's calendar from Advent to Christmas to 40 days in the wilderness to his last week, like Palm Sunday, trial, death, resurrection, Easter Sunday, Pentecost. There's a season in the church calendar where we recognize Christ as the king who's sitting enthroned, right? The church calendar is set up to follow the footsteps of Jesus' life, right? And why is that? It's on purpose, and it's because we need the gospel story to be like infusing our life through our worship, through the celebrations, the feasts that we have, the holidays that we celebrate, right? We walk in Jesus' shoes through church calendar, through the format of our worship service, participating even if we're ignorant in it because we need that, because we're not going to know how to live rightly in light of the new kind of human being that we're supposed to be becoming, right? Because Paul even says, I find it a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So Paul doesn't have that down in our own strength. So we need all these different like structures in our life to help form us and shape us towards the story and the truth of the gospel, towards being like Jesus. He's the picture of a full human, right? Lives in the blessing of God, fully bears the image and nature of God, fully practices what it means to be a blessed human, right? Fruitful, multiplies through his disciples, fills the earth with the glory of God, practices dominion like God practices dominion, which is compassionate and creative, right? Anytime Jesus' authority shows up in the New Testament, it's always like, storm, be calm. But why? So that his friends who are scared could feel peace, right? It's not like a self-serving dominion, right? So that's, Jesus is the picture of what it looks like to be fully human, and he's also fully God, right? And I don't know how to live like that. So I go to church and I celebrate the holidays of the church, right? So that even in just like my passive life, I'm getting the story of Jesus. And then I want to look in the Bible for Jesus. I want to read the Bible looking for his story, right? Jesus is better than every hero in the Old Testament on purpose, right? He's more faithful than Abraham. He's more courageous than David. He's, you know, a better prophet than Isaiah or Jeremiah, right? We look at those people in the Old Testament looking for Jesus so that we could learn about him and walk in his footsteps. And then in the New Testament, we get this full scope of Jesus' life and his nature, right? We want to read the Bible and let his life infuse our imagination, our hope, our like picture of what it means to be a good human, to be a new creation, to be a seed of the kingdom of God, right? And we can do that. Jesus isn't less human than us, actually. He's not less human than us just because he, was, he wasn't fallen, just because he didn't sin, right? Jesus is actually more fully human than any of us because he isn't fallen. He's also fully God. I'm not losing that side of things. I'm not trying to be heretical. Um, but he's not less human than us because he was without a fallen nature. He is more fully human than any of us because he isn't fallen. We're not supposed to be fallen, and because Jesus isn't fallen. He's actually what we're supposed to be. We've got to follow his lead through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So it's totally appropriate to ask the question, what would Jesus do? But let's not stop there. Let's ask the question, what would Jesus do if he were living my life? Because he lived 2,000 years ago, and I'm, I'm not a carpenter in Nazareth. How would Jesus be gracious while he's waiting in line to get new tires? 
How would Jesus be a perfect new Adam while he's on hold with customer service? How would he bear the frustrations of being a parent or a spouse or an employee? Because those things can be frustrating. We can ask these questions because the Bible tells us that Jesus is in us, right? All of these things I'm saying to you today are not God's call on your life to go back and build Babel again. He doesn't want us to build the Tower of Babel. He's not trying to put this, the pressure of an unbearable burden on us. He's actually trying to unburden us and just say, I did it for you, right? Follow in my footsteps. We have a perfect example. The only perfect way of being a full human is Jesus. We want to look at that perfect example and follow in his ways. And also, by the way, he's God fully. And also, he is near to you. And also, he's already fully paid for your sins, so you don't have to stress about earning this position as a seed of the kingdom of God and a new human, right? The path towards being glorified dust, right, like breaking through that glass ceiling of just being dust, is not up to you fully, right? You can't earn that. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning because we can't do it. That's what the Tower of Babel teaches us. So instead of trying to go do that and just say, as a Christian, I'm going to build the Tower of Babel, let's just give it all over to Jesus, but also follow in his footsteps. We also, I think, need to look to the needs of our body and the needs of those around us who have bodies. Be present and be responsible in your life, right? Do the one another's of the New Testament. Bear one another's burdens, right? Lift up one another in love. Speak the truth in love. All of these things that the New Testament talks about, like, because Jesus made you a new human, go do these things. Go be responsible to your neighbors, to your husband or wife or children or whoever the other bodies around you are, right? Go be intentionally submitted to um, dwelling for their good. Right? That's what Jesus does. That's what the, like, the authority, the action of God in creation is. Right? It's self-giving. It's redeeming. Right? We want to hear the word and receive it so deeply that we become doers of it that care for orphans and widows. That's from the book of James. We just read a minute ago how Jesus took on a body for the sake of honoring and dignifying our lives. And if we want to be like him, we should also make moves to do that too honor and dignify the lives of others around us. Lift other people up. So, pray, be patient, look to Jesus through worship, through the church, look to Jesus through the scriptures, and then try to follow in his life by the grace of God, with the Holy Spirit. There's so much more we could say about the incarnation and about what it means to like fully rest with the truth of the incarnation in our life right now today. And maybe that's, maybe that's a good like thought project for us as we're leaving church. Like when you're in the car or on the way to lunch or wherever you go after this, maybe it's a good question to ask like, okay, what other ways does the fact that Jesus has, took on a body, still has a body, right? What are ways that the incarnation can like be meaningful to my life? Like how can I live differently in light of that? Go ask yourself that question as you leave today. But it's also like there's so much more we could say. This is not the full picture because the incarnation is a mystery. How does it work that God came in the flesh, that Jesus is fully human and fully God, right? Athanasius, at the end of his book that I quoted earlier, says this, and I love this. Such and so many are the Savior's achievements that follow from his incarnation that to try to number them is like gazing at the open sea and trying to count the waves, 
we're not going to understand the whole mystery. There's a whole bunch of reasons why the sermon that I'm preaching is imperfect, um, and partially because it, it just couldn't encapsulate all the things that it means that God took on flesh, right? But what I, I do want to do today, I want to encourage our hearts to do, is look at this one wave that in Jesus, in the incarnate God, we are invited to be a new creation, right? And go, wow, man, I can't believe how good God is. Like, he did that for me. So let's put our lives around this incredible God who took on flesh to make us new, okay? Let me, uh, let me pray for us really quick before we take the table. Jesus, you are so good to us. Like in our, in our fallenness, in our corruption, you could have totally turned away and say like you're bound to dust and you're never actually gonna be anything but people who return to dust. Um, but you're so good and you're so kind to freely choose to like take on all of our dustiness, like put off the robe of eternal glory that you always have lived in with the Father and the Spirit and actually take on the clothes of being a human, right? So that you could give us what belongs to you, like, that's so good, Jesus. You're so good to us. And I pray today and for the rest of this new year, or at least just like a little bit, you could like put it in our hearts to place our hope in you, to look to you, um, that you could encourage the way that we, we live our lives, um, to live in the light of how good you were to come for us and to give us your way of being. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.